You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 3rd, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. So, do you guys know what I saw last night? On shooting TV? star. Oh. No. <laughs> what? On TV. Uh, I saw uh, Santa Clarita Diet. The reboot of The Twilight Zone. Oh, I haven't oh, seen it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't watch it. Cool. Two Neat. episodes dropped, just two episodes. Yeah. I watched them both. Yes. Uh, they're both really good. Was there something is on it, the wing? Are they creepy? <laughs> is Jordan Peele the host? Yes, Jordan Peele is the Yay. host. He does awesome. a great job. I mean, awesome. you know, nobody is Rod Serling. Mm, right? Please. Sure. But Stop it. In so many ways, Jordan Peele, like all of the movies that he's made recently, I, I love that it's kind of a match made in heaven. Yeah, no, he's I perfect. He's doing a great job. Feel that but, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just Twilight Zone vibe, yeah. Just get mm-hmm. Rod Serling out of your head, though. But the thing is, <laughs> the but the intro, the music, and everything is exactly Twilight Zone. It's like, nice. you know, almost exactly the classic Twilight Zone. Well, the graphics Zone. aren't the same, are they? The graphics are updated, but they're basically the same. So it is, it's it is the Twilight Zone. Right? It is the Twilight Zone. It absolutely, it one hundred percent is. Yeah, good. like they had the rights. They didn't. It's not like like the Twilight's lean. Or no, something. no. And one yeah, of the two stories good. was Terror at Thirty Thousand Feet. There you go. Whoa. Well, I'll just say this. I'll just say this. It was totally different. Okay. It's so how's so yeah, William Chatner looking that episode? <laughs> There's something <laughs> out on the tail. There's something <laughs> on the wing. <laughs> yeah. no, it's totally different. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a more it's a more modern concept of what would cause terror on an airplane. Oh god. Snakes. Spoilers. Snakes. Spoilers. Oh boy. Oh, god, snakes. It's all about exactly. snakes. <laughs> and it was very good. It was excellent. So I'm enjoying it. Two first episodes, solid. I'm looking forward to the whole season. It's going to be cool. So the first time that I watched an episode of Black Mirror was like several years ago. Before Netflix picked it up, they played it on Audience Channel on DirecTV. And I'm not sure if you hadn't like lived in the UK, if that was the first way that you could have it here. And it blew my mind. Like I'd never seen anything about it. Nobody had ever promoted it. And I just stumbled on it. And I was like, whoa, this is the modern Twilight Zone. It's what I always called Black Mirror when I first started watching it. How does it compare to Black Mirror? Is it darker, less dark, weirder? It's different. So Black Mirror okay. is, is really you know social commentary mm-hmm. on the, the Twilight e- Zone was yeah, but this is but Black Mirror is more specifically about the effects of social media and modern technology on society, whereas right. the Twilight Zone is like just really weird shit happens. Yeah, but it, does, world. it does explore the psychology behind. The situation, like there's always this moral lesson at the core of the Twilight Zone episode. So the yeah. format's a little different, but and the, the newer episodes are totally Twilight Zone. You know, so the, they're 100. percent It's like as much as you can have a continuation of the series. I told, I think I told you guys before that um, I started watching through the the old Twilight Zone with my daughters, right? Yeah, yeah. and the stories are great. But oh my God, the format is so dated. The pacing, <laughs> the, the pacing is horrific. Yeah, and you but really that's can what see. It was back then. I know you could really see how uh, you know modern storytelling has evolved in in TV and film. How much more efficient it is, and because you it's like watching paint dry some scenes. Like my daughters are like, "What 
is happening. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. It's called patience. It was a more patient I've, time back then. I've often wondered, you know, because of the internet and we're, we're used to things happening much faster, is the editing time going to even get faster in movies, right? I've, I've done a lot of, um, you know, I, I edit all of our Alpha Quadrant 6 videos and I've done a lot of editing for SGU over the years. And I have a background in editing at this point. I understand it very well. And as a fan of editing and of what, what professional editors can do and the, the beautiful work that they can do to make a movie come alive, it's kind of scary when you see an, as an example. I'll give you a quick example. I saw someone talking about the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this Which person was saying – well, it was a good movie. It was. I enjoyed it. I had I had a lot of flaws, but I I enjoyed it. I know a lot of people don't agree with that, but th- this guy went through the details of, of why the editing was very poor in that movie. And then when I watched the clips that he was showing, and he's explaining why it was bad, I couldn't believe how bad it was. Like how <laughs> quick the edits are, and how how it doesn't help the storytelling at all. And, and yeah. you know, he, he's speculating as an editor. You know, I can see an editor making decisions like this if the movie wasn't shot well in this particular scene. The editor would have have his or her hands tied. Right. But is that what happened? Because otherwise, this is the conversation is about whether or not it's a choice. Well, that you know, there was discussion on whether or not it was it was deliberate or not, and this person believed that it was not the editor's choice. That it was definitely like a lack of proper footage could force an editor to do that. Then that's really just a that's a fluke, right? Well, I think he he was saying that the whole movie's riddled with these problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so but who like knows whether cinema is evolving in that direction? I mean, of course, we're evolving away from. We've talked about this before on the show. Like somebody walking from one room to another. Yeah. And like the audience having to sit through that. We now know that you can imply certain things, and, yeah. and the story still moves the way that it moves. But I still think that. There is cinema and there are jump cut YouTube videos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are certain new films that utilize those to appeal to young people or to have like horror vibes or to give you that fast, you know, feeling. But I don't think cinema is ever going to turn into a YouTube video completely. Well, no, I'm not saying I'm not saying that it's it's gonna get to that point, but we mm-hmm. have absolutely seen the uh the pace of filmmaking increase like so the so specifically i'm talking about how quick the edits are and how the fast the shot length the shot yeah, length but, yeah like but the, we also I've, have more tools now we do it because it's better well that's like, I, that's the question is it better is it, it is it what you're enhancing the storytelling it depends what you're I mean, going you, for no we talked about it the objective idea was i mean you used to have to literally cut the film and reattach it you could only do that so many times. You You're lying. Not, we never did that. Yeah, you could not edit the way that we can edit now digitally. And so just the technology has allowed us to be much more creative in the way that we do storytelling and to be able to – and now we know more about psychology too. We know how people eye blink and we know how mm-hmm. their attention shifts and things like that. So I think you can take it too far and that's like probably as – I've never seen Bohemian Rhapsody, so I can't speak to that. But there are examples where the editing's just bad in movies. Yeah, yeah it's just quality, not necessarily yeah. they should yeah. style. They should give artificial intelligence a chance at editing some movies and see what that comes up with. I would love to see those results. Well, it's, mm. yeah, it depends on the AI. Again, you have kids, you watch cartoons, and cartoons have their own kind of culture in terms of how quick mm. they are. And at one point, there were some cartoons where the cuts got so short they became unwatchable. 
Yeah. Like what show, and, Steve? Like they're irritating. They, they were irritating. You but yeah. what, what's good, I thought, okay, holy shit. Do like my daughters really want to watch this? Is this like a generational thing? No, but they didn't like it either. Mm-hmm. And the and then I saw on this same network later cartoons which got better in quality re- reverted to a more sane shot length and editing feel, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was – I hope that – I don't think it's going to be a relentless trend towards de- decreased shot lengths and you doing it just for the sake of doing it or to give a cartoon or whatever a frenetic feel to it got beyond the uh, you know at least my ability and my daughter's as well so I don't think it was totally enjoy uh, generational to Yeah and it's a platform it. thing. Yeah. Like like on a big screen it's very different than on a TV it's very different than on a tablet and it doesn't mean like it looks different cuz of course we watch TV shows on our on our phones now and we watch films on our iPads and things like that but it's more along the lines of like the way that some people consume YouTube content is that they watch a few seconds and then they skip to the next thing or they watch a minute of it and then they skip to the next thing so it's keeping up with that pace right. and yeah. I think what ended up happening when the quote unquote internet got big and we understood and like television producers and networks understood that this was an actual competitive field because they used to minimize it and be like oh that'll never threaten TV and then they realized people were cord cutting and it freaked them out so they're like let's do the internet on TV and then they were like oh that didn't work that didn't work yeah it didn't work yeah. at all right yeah Forcing yeah. square pegs into round holes, essentially. Yeah, and so I don't think you know we see examples of film where we're doing the internet on film or even TV on film, and it, you know, in some situations it works, but I think film is still film. How about Apollo There's, Eleven? They're saying you must see that in the theater. Everybody's been talking must, about must that. Must see it mm-hmm. in theater. Well, yeah, it won't and be the same if you try to see it at home. And you know really? what? I just watched it at home that say? I'm really mad at myself for not having seen in the theater was Free Solo. Hmm. That must that. have been guys, gorgeous. Uh, oh, that my Star Wars gosh. movie? No. Oh, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you Free guys Solo haven't seen Free great. Solo? Yeah, I saw it. Oh, you've seen it. Can yeah. you imagine, though, watching it on it. a massive screen? That would be cool. Imagine or like IMAX. an IMAX. IMAX. Yeah. <gasps> <gasps> <Yeah>. speaking, <laughs> speaking of IMAX, yes. do you guys see the new show, uh, What We Do in the Shadows? No. I've heard no. of it. It has nothing to do with IMAX. They oh my god! Recognized the movie though. It's oh, I saw one episode. Now this is based on the uh, the film, right? Of the same yeah. name. The film's amazing. The film was wonderful. This one I saw the first episode. I really enjoyed it. It's it's basically a documentary style movie about very old but modern vampires. So they're they're centuries old and they're hopelessly out of out of time, out of sync uh, with modern society. But they are. But they're still vampires. They still kill people they still drink blood and they still do, turn into bats and do and do goofy stuff and it's just it's <laughs> so funny and one of the one of the vampires is matt berry if you know who matt berry is you mm-hmm. just got much more excited to see this because this guy I, I don't know I, I saw this guy in the it crowd and fell in love he's hilarious and he's a vampire uh it's a lot of fun it's just so awkward and weird and funny and there's there's these little minions that they have or these little slave servant people that they want to be a vampire but Wait, they got they got to put yeah well they're yeah like like minions like they have like this one the lead vampire has a minion and he's been helping him mm. doing his daytime work stuff for like 10 years and in the hopes of becoming a vampire and he's the guys are the uh, you know he's a geek and he's just really hopelessly awkward and weird dude uh, obviously, since he's like he's helping the vampire to get rid of bodies and doing all sorts of this sketchy stuff, but it's just a funny show. I saw it at one episode. I really liked it. I'm looking forward to, to more. So, so I I told you guys to watch what we do in the shadows. Like I've told you to watch this movie like a hundred times. Loved and you it. Never did. I can't be talking <laughs> about it. Except for Bob. I saw it. Except Loved for it. Bob. Loved it. Good. Um, 
So the vibe of what we do in the shadows, the original film, it's Jermaine Clement. Yes. So you guys know Flight of the Concord. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So That's it's him. that vibe. That's it's cool. very much that vibe of Take the film. Take a Waiti? But I, I'm very worried. Oh, and uh, Reese Darby is in it, too. He plays one of the werewolves. So their manager in, in Flight of the Concords. You know, their manager. I can't remember. Yes, yes. Name. So I just, I don't know. I worry about the translation to an American version. I don't, uh, my boyfriend watched it last night, and he was like, it's watchable. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, he gave it it's a solid better than five I. Yeah. He was just as nervous as I was about it. And then he was like, it was better than I thought it was going to be. And it was the pilot. So pilots always suck. So maybe I'll give it a chance. At the other end of the spectrum. So I was cruising Netflix. And Uh Netflix has a ton of crap on there. Some of it's mm-hmm. good, but they, you, 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 like, everything <laughs> everything has has yeah. five stars. Or was it six stars or five stars? Well, what I'm just saying, no, some of it is good. I watch some of the shows, but they also they throw in like you you pull you pull up an episode. It looks good in terms of the picture, and then when you start to watch, you realize, holy crap, this is like a foreign TV series. Yes, that that's, you know you can get it. You can get it. You know, hopefully dubbed in English. But I was, I was watching The Immortals, which is also about vampires, but I think it's it's some kind of Arabic. Originally, it's hard for me to tell because I just. Oh, so is just, it actually dubbed or is it? Uh, yeah, so I'm just I'm listening. I'm watching it dubbed in English. So I don't know what the original uh, language is. Maybe you can switch over and watch it with. Um, I subtitles. hate subtitles. Uh. <laughs> but here's the thing: wow. it's awful. It's word. terrible. So Jay, here's the thing, Jay. If you yeah. want to watch a show mm-hmm. where everything is bad. And you can get a feel for, oh, yeah, that, you know, like if you want to see bad editing and bad <laughs> choices in terms of storytelling, like, everything is, is everything. It's like a, it's a total B TV series. And, you've, oh, and, and it gives you an appreciation for how good modern TV is mm. because you watch it like, yeah, like there's just no flow. There's no, they're not managing the storytelling or the viewer experience. It's so, everything is so awkward, you know? Um, and then it gets, oh, has like a, see it. Well, it has like a nineteen seventies, <laughs> like nineteen eighties kind of bad TV vibe to it in oh, a way, boy. where like stuff happens. Like why is why is that person there now? Like there's no <laughs> continuity. <laughs> you know, it's just <laughs> why is that person they, there? They, now? Steve, it was it a sounds like a master they, class they on, to- on how to. How not to make a video, right? That's yeah. that's what I'm saying. As you watch it, it gives you an appreciation for how good, good. How TV many stars movies. did it have, Steve? I bet it had six. <laughs> I don't, I don't remember. They all have six stars. Yeah, I know. so annoying. All right, let's move on to some science news, guys. Oh wow, okay. I have what I think is the science news item of the year. Oh, oh boy, here that's goes big. Big. Here big. we go. Yeah, this one is exciting. Is exciting. I mean, this might be this is going to definitely be on my short list for the news item of the decade. Uh, I don't know about that. The decade. Oh, absolutely. Bigger than gravitational waves. Give me a break. Well, he said I said short list, list not, not number 1, but short. It'll be on like top 10. And uh, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And if you just restrict it to paleontology, this could be the paleontological story of the century. But that might be overcalling it a little bit. There's a lot of the century yeah, left. It's only 19 but, years. Yeah. But here we go. Ready? So, uh, yeah. As long as I like to yeah. hear yeah. Paleontologists <laughs> have discovered a massive fossil bed that dates from probably the very hour that the asteroid hit at the KT extinction and wiped out most of the dinosaurs. That's because the pocket watch they had was stopped right at the precise moment. <laughs> right. It. So imagine we are we have yeah, a documented cool. fossil bed that's showing us what happened 
right after the asteroid impact. How could they possibly know, you might be wondering. I know you guys are all familiar with this story, right? But this yeah, is yeah. so <laughs> cool. The paleontologist, actually a young paleontologist called Robert De Palma, and he's been working in the Hell Creek area of North Dakota. Hell Creek is a very prolific fossil bed in, in the United States. That's where the first T-Rex skeleton was discovered. Yeah. It's a great window into the late Cretaceous, you know, when T-Rex was roaming around with Triceratops and a lot of other charismatic dinosaurs. Uh, essentially a um, a rancher. So a lot of the land there is privately owned, and so the people who own that land will sometimes sell fossils or access to their land to paleontologists or even private collectors. And so a rancher contacted uh, De Palma and said, you know, I have this fossil. It's a fossil fish. I don't think it's worth anything. You there's a there's a whole bunch of them on my property. You're welcome to it. This guy oh. thought it was he thought it was so worthless that he was like, "What is he even trying to sell it?" He's just oh my like, gosh, giving away the farm. When De Palma first evaluated it, that was his first impression too. That this is you know okay, this is a bunch of fish, but he was looking for and here's the thing: he actually was looking for a uh, sediment layers from around the KT boundary. Or the mm-hmm. KPG, as it's now called, although some people still call it the KT. So this is 66 million years ago, right? 66 million years ago, T-Rex, you know, is roaming around. It's the height of the dinosaurs. And an asteroid struck the, the Chuxalub, where the Chuxalub crater is now, so right on the shore in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, this was a huge uh, asteroid, a few miles across, 45,000 miles an hour, direct hit to the Earth. That's a lot uh, of kinetic energy. A lot of kinetic energy. <laughs> Just a this, little. This killed, this impact killed 99.9999% of all living things on Earth. Point nine, three nines? Four. Is it that much? 99.9999% yeah. so of all living but things. All What survived? Of, of a percent um, of things. 0.00001% of living things. Small mammals. So that's small not, mammals, some sea creatures, insects. So that's not species. That's just of living, individual living the actual, creatures. Yeah, yeah, things. So it killed 75% of all species. So only 25% of species survived. Jeez. Okay, all right. But those were all pretty small things. Yeah. They, yeah, yeah. They, all the big stuff died. Well, the bacteria um, were fine. <laughs> oh, Some gosh. of them. All, only the uh, all of the non-avian dinosaurs were killed at this point, and we've talked about this before about this notion of was it was the impact what caused all the extinctions, or were they already dying off because of volcanoes or whatever? And I think the consensus pretty much is, yeah, it was the it was the impact. It was the ash. Regardless, it was the end. Yeah, end. whether it was <laughs> the coup de grace or the soul yeah. act, it was it was definitely the end. And uh, so at this, you know, geologically at this boundary, there's dinosaurs below the KT boundary. There's no dinosaurs above the KT boundary, right? So De Palma was looking for um, – in this, in this Hell Creek area, there are valleys that would occasionally flood. And that mm-hmm. flooding event would leave a sediment layer. And each sediment layer was like a snapshot of the ecosystem at the moment the flood occurred, Right. So you get sort of like trapped in a sediment layer, a snapshot of the ecosystem. You get that? So he, was, yep. he, wanted, to, he wanted to find one from as close to the KT boundary as he could find so he could get a snapshot of the, you know, that moment of, of when, the, when that event occurred so we could learn as much about the KT extinction as possible. And it turns out that this bed 
this uh, fossil bed that he that he was pointed to by a, a local rancher was at the KT boundary. But it was a thick sediment layer, a very thick sediment layer. And what he eventually came to discover was that this thick sediment layer was not near the KT boundary. It was the KT boundary. The whole thing. The whole damn thing. The whole thing was all the KT boundary, meaning this was the event. This was the asteroid impact. There's a few ways that he knows this, right? Obviously, it's been dated and it dates properly. So one way that we know is that there are geological structures that only occur with massive impacts, right? There are things that just are not formed on Earth. They're only formed from the immense energy in the moment of an impact. For example, nanodiamonds, right, or shocked quartz. Um, you just form these types of rock that only get made under the, the pressure of an asteroid impact. Nano, so baby. these kind <laughs> of features, and also we talked about Iridium, right? So iridium was what was initially found in the KT boundary all around the world uh, when um, the Alvarez father and son team they basically in 1980 published the first paper saying, hey, there was probably an asteroid impact 66 million years ago. Maybe that's what that's, called the dinosaurs. Because that's, that's where you find iridium primarily. Uh, you don't find it generally on the surface unless yes, it came a, from an asteroid or meteor. Rare on the, rare on the Earth's crust, but but – common in asteroids. And so to have a layer of iridium all around the Earth right at the same age certainly sounds like an impact. And I think also it was, a, uh, it was a, um, a, an isotope that's more likely to be in an asteroid than on Earth. So pretty, pretty conclusive evidence there. Uh, so there's iridium throughout the entire layer. There's shocked quartz and nanodiamond throughout the entire layer. But there's something else. So when the asteroid hits, it throws up magma into the atmosphere. Some mm. of it goes into orbit around the Earth. Some of it escapes the or- orbit of the Earth. That impact event seeded Earth material in everybody on every planet and moon in the solar system. Amazing. There's, really? There's Whoa. parts of the Earth on Titan because of that impact, there's like wow, somebody. Yep. Somebody actually like did a calculation. There's like millions of tons of Earth on Titan from that impact. Wow! In fact, didn't, that stu- didn't a bunch of stuff also just like rain down all over? Yes. The Earth after and and then oh. th- whatever didn't escape orbital velocity rained back down. So sure. there was a rain of burning magma on the Earth, which set fire to about seventy five percent of the Earth's. I forest. hate when that happens. Oh, oh yeah. my God! How do you survive that exactly? Well, that's right. I mean, so, so imagine. So the Earth was now enshrouded in sulfur, in fire, in carbon, my, carbon monoxide, and burning wow. rain. The proverbial so that's, hell on Earth. Yeah, that's yeah. why 99.99999% of things died, right? And then after that, after the forests were burned down, we had a nuclear winter, right? Everything went into a deep freeze. <laughs> wow. So it's amazing anything survived at that point. Uh, now, when the when the when some of the material rains down, it comes down as glass spheres. Jesus, and that's something else that is a sign. That's a sign of of an impact, right? If you have hmm. glass, these they're tiny. You have these tiny glass spheres. That's a sign of the the aftermath of a, of an asteroid, a large Steve, I asteroid thought, impact. I, for some reason, in my mind, when you said glass spheres, I look. I was thinking of things the size of bowling balls. No, these are teeny <laughs> tiny. These are teeny no, tiny nodules. Yeah. Yeah, not microscopic. I mean, sometimes I get they could be, but they're like marble or smaller size, like pea size, you know, just teeny tiny. So what, what De Palma found, and this is cool, check this out. He found 
craters in the sediment. And at the bottom of those craters was what we call a tectite. And a tectite is one of these glass spheres. But over the millions of years, most of it has turned to clay. So you have a little clay sphere with a little glass sphere at the core. So there's still a little bit of glass at the core, and it's surrounded by clay. That's a tectite. That is an artifact from the asteroid impact. So that means that this sediment was laid down when they were still falling because they were landing and creating little mini craters with a tectite at the bottom. So we know that this sediment layer was, you know, basically was there, was on the surface of the earth while the glass spheres were raining down. Did all the fallout occur on one day? Yeah. So that, that probably took about an hour. An you hour. know, 45 that's minutes. A hell of an hour. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, that's, that's amazing. But there's more. Because Whoa. he also <laughs> found that it, so it's, it's mostly fish in this, in this bed. There's lots of other stuff. There's this amber, like, plastered against trees, and there's all kinds of little animals. So in the fish, they had the little glass spheres in their gills. Wedged so again, this in is, there. This is a sediment layer, so things are Silly well fish trying to breathe spheres? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. that means those fish were alive when the spheres were in the water. They were saying, what's happening? This is what they think happened. Imagine the asteroid hitting the Gulf of Mexico, right? It's like on the shoreline of Mexico. And not only does it send up a, all this material, but it causes a tsunami, right? The, all the water in that area now gets pushed away. So you have this huge wave of water from the Gulf of Mexico flowing over the United States from south to north. Not only does it take with it all of the fish, but now it's scouring the land. And it eventually, some of it settled into this valley, mm -hmm. laying down feet of silt and sediment and all of the crap that it dragged with it, including all of that fish. And there they lay, dead and dying, flopping around while these glass spheres and other crap is raining down on them. And then that gets fossilized. Cool. To be found 66 million years later. To be found 66 million years later. So how far at the time it happened were they from the impact site? So it's North Dakota, right? So it's from Gulf of Mexico to North Dakota. So here's one question. So but wait, South that was before, the, but like the, it looked different back then from tectonic plates. So like actually how far away were they? The, the, it's all the same continental plate, right? So, oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, so this is all part of North America. So it's all part of the same North American plate. So I think their re relative distance was about the same. Gotcha. Some scientists have said, though, they, they've questioned whether or not a wave from the Gulf of Mexico could have reached North Dakota before the rain of glass stopped. They say it may, so they're trying to computer model this now. Saying it might have taken too long. So their alternate hypothesis is that the impact caused a local flood because uh, this was a flood valley, right? This again, this they were looking in this region for these layers of sediment from from occasional floods. This was just mm -hmm. the, the biggest one. So they think maybe there was a massive flood triggered by the earthquakes. But I still prefer the tsunami idea, the idea that this water sloshed from the Gulf of Mexico and settled in this valley in North Dakota. That's one of the details that I think still needs to be worked out. But that was the case that the authors made. Call it the great slosh. Amazing. So we have yeah. you know all this evidence pointing to, yeah, this is all from what was happening in the hour or whatever after 
the asteroid impact, and we now we have this massive snapshot preserved in a fossil bed. Just amazing. So this is going to give us more information about what was going on in the world that day, the asteroid hit. You know, what we might even be able to figure out what time of year it was, you know, by what pollen is in there. Yeah. There's there's going to be a bunch of there's going to be a bunch of other papers coming from this. This is just like the first salvo in a series of papers that will be coming out of this fossil bed. But how cool is that to have a preservation again the snapshot of the the hour after that asteroid hit. That is just so cool. I mean, it's, it's amazing. There's so many things. Like it could have been very easy. It would have been easy for them just not to find it. Yeah, what if the guy didn't pick up the phone and call the guy? <laughs> call the yeah. Well, yeah. What I love is that it's like taking that little that little KT boundary that, that they've been studying for so long and just blowing it up and expanding it and making it huge and then yeah. and letting you just walk around it and just like, wow, look at all these details that we never would have seen if this didn't happen. It's an amazing resolution. Now, what's interesting is – I, what, until I saw this news item, I was going to talk about another fossil find that I thought was the best fossil find of the decade. What? So, yes. Which one? Check this out. I'm going, so I want to do this quickly because I, don't want, because I know it's kind of a double news item. But it's just so funny that like the, my, the two most dramatic fossil finds in the decade were within a week of each other. Frustrating, huh? I know. So <laughs> you, guys are, you guys are familiar with the Cambrian explosion. Oh, yes. yes. We've, we've talked about yeah. this on the show before. The, the quickie thing is this is 500 to 550 million years ago, thereabouts. And this was the first fossil evidence of multicellular life. There is the Ediacaran fauna, which is pre-Cambrian. And it's still not clear if those were early precursors or just or a different branch of life. We talked a few months ago about evidence that maybe this was actually early Cambrian life, but it's still an open question. A lot of what we know about the Cambrian fauna comes from, you guys know where, what's the, what's the famous fossil bed that was our first view into Cambrian life? Oh, God damn it. Oh, the Burgess point. Shale. Yes. The Burgess Shale Thank in you. Canada. Yeah, so again, shale is basically... Uh, solidified sediment, right? So mm-hmm. sediments are good because they, they preserve three-dimensional structures really well. So the, the Berger Shale is just this treasure trove of Cambrian fauna, and pretty much everything we know about the Cambrian comes from this one massive find. And this was described like 100 years ago, and it's just amazing. Uh, since then, there have been other, obviously, Cambrian finds and Cambrian fossils, but there's only there was only one other uh, large... Cambrian uh, fossil bed or Cambrian biota, uh, and that was discovered in China. The it's called the Chengjiang uh, biota. Also, it was in China. So here's the news item: is that we've discovered the third massive Cambrian fossil find. This is the Qingjiang biota. So this is also in China. Uh, this one. So the, the Cambrian was from 541 to 485 million years ago. Uh, this one dates to uh, 514 million years ago. So it's still considered to be the early Cambrian, uh, but it's a different time than the other one. The other one from China was 525 million years ago. So this is 11 million years later. So again, it, it, it's easy in your mind to think of these as being contemporary because they're both Cambrian, but they were 11 million years apart. So certainly enough time for a lot of evolution to occur. And the Burgess shales on the other side of the planet. 
Right? So there's no reason wow. to, to suspect that these three different Cambrian fossil beds would have exactly the same species right. in them. Right? Any, any hallucinogenica? I didn't see that. I, didn't, I, didn't, I haven't re- looked through all the ones they have. But here's what they have so far. So they have 20,000 samples. Uh, they've what? examined 4,000 of them. In those 4,000 samples, they've identified 101 genera, right, genuses, 50 of them previously unknown. So Ooh. half of, oh, wow. half of the genera that they found were, were previously unknown, were new. So, that, so half were ones that we knew about already. So there there's a career. There's ca- multiple careers right there. Yes. So this is, this is going to take 50, 60 more years to really – maybe longer to really plow through all of these fossils. This is a massive, massive find. And the, the quality of the fossils is exquisite. I've been looking oh, at some nice. pictures of them. Fine, fine detail, anatomical detail, three-dimensional detail, Sweet. really exquisite. Yeah, and it's just an incredible find. Man, that is so awesome. And this, might, this probably will not happen again in most of our lifetimes. Could, yeah, maybe I not. I mean, this is three oh, in a hundred years to right? put that into context. Yeah. So we've got 33 so, years to go. <laughs> we'll be there. We'll get another. Amazing, amazing find. Oh, but my yeah, God. That, i got to read about is, this. That's what I was going to talk about. And then the KT one happened. Like, holy shit, this is even better. That just blew up <laughs> the other one. Yeah. Awesome. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Bombas Socks. Ooh, Bombas. We love our Bombas. Don't you guys love your Bombas? I'm wearing them right now. They're my favorite socks. I'm, I'm in workout clothes right now. And I have to say, I love Bombas all the time, but I especially love working out in Bombas because I like the little ankle no-show socks. They're super comfortable. They have a cushion on the back heel. They grip around your arch and really support it. And they're super breathable. Not too thick, not too thin. Oh my gosh, they're just perfect. And not only that, for every purchase you make, Bombas donates a pair of socks to someone in need. And that really helps because socks are actually the number one requested item in homeless shelters. That's because you can't donate old socks. You need somebody to donate new socks. So Bombas is doing it. Pretty awesome. That's perfect. And we want you to buy your Bombas socks at bombas.com slash skeptics. Do it today and get 20% off of your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash skeptics for 20% off. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Kara. Yeah? So yeah. this is this is interesting story about using brain scans uh, as evidence in criminal cases. Tell us about that. This is, I mean, the idea of using brain scans in a criminal case, it's obviously not new. I think we've talked before on the show about forensic evidence and how the rules are a little bit different in the justice system than they are in medical treatment, for example. Basically, the role in a courtroom is to either convince a jury of guilt or innocence, right? And one of the things, you know, when it comes to kind of this high-tech, sciency sounding sciency looking stuff that happens all the time is neurological evidence. For a lot of people sitting on a jury, if they can see a brain image and then they can hear an expert talk about that brain image, it's going to feel more scientifically cut and dry. 
It's like you can't argue with brain scans, right? Exactly. There's a brain scan there. And of course, without understanding everything that goes into what they're scanning and how scans work. And I think oftentimes they will talk about that um, in a trial, but oftentimes they might not. So it's it's a super interesting um, field of inquiry right now, forensic evidence and how scientific it actually is. But beyond all that, what these researchers decided to do is they were like, from a psychological perspective, how do people respond if they are given neurobiological evidence in a criminal trial? So there's been not very much research done in this world, and it's been sort of inconclusive previously. Um, but it seems like these researchers might have filled a, p- a few gaps or plugged a few holes that previous research left open. They took volunteers and they asked them what they would do if they were on a jury. So that's very different than actually seeing how a jury does react, right? Because the stakes are different. So keep that in mind. What they did is they took 330 volunteers and they showed them a defendant and or like a scenario about a defendant. And then they said, you know, how would you punish this defendant? It's like a little case study. And that gave them a baseline. And then they had different treatment conditions, basically. They had a control condition where they said, well, this defendant is, you know, just a normal dude, a healthy dude. And then they had a section where they said this defendant has an impulse control disorder. And they even split that further and gave a psychological account. So they put it basically a fake psychologist on the stand, which, of course, this was all just pen and paper. But um, they had a, a fake psychologist saying this is what's going on in this impulse control disorder. And then in the other condition, they had neurobiological evidence. So this, you know, imaging evidence and said this person has an impulse control decision uh, disorder. Look right here in their brain. See this area that's lighting up or see this area that's not lighting up. You can see in their brain that they weren't really responsible for their actions at that time. So you've got those three conditions, right? They also subdivided those conditions down into both in the psychological and the neurobiological, uh, it was treatable versus it wasn't treatable because they wanted to see if people changed their opinions based on whether that person could get better. And so really, they were trying to figure out how do people blame? How much moral responsibility is there? How much punishment is appropriate if somebody has a neurological condition that causes them to not be able to control their actions. And if we present it to them on a jury as being something that you can explicitly see on a brain scan, as being something that a psychologist can talk about, or as not existing at all. So they had hypothesized that this is a double-edged sword. And people have often hypothesized that the idea of using brain imaging in court trials is a double-edged sword. Um, can you guys imagine why it would be a double-edged sword? If they think they couldn't help themselves and they think, well, there's, they can't be rehabilitated, we better lock them away. Yeah. So there's part of it is that there's this double-edged sword where they're like, well, if they can't help themselves, they're going to keep doing it. Yeah. But the other part is, well, they can't help themselves. So it so, wasn't really right. their fault. Why punish them? So that, you know, they had a few different hypotheses in these study and previous studies, what they didn't do is they didn't show the difference between they gave them options for 
not just prison sentences, like how long should the prison sentence be, but also an option, how long should involuntary hospitalization last? And previous studies had only asked about prison sentences. So when they offered that secondary question about how long should this person be committed involuntarily, the picture started to change. And what they found was that from baseline, a healthy control, you know, didn't significantly change in terms of their prison term. Um, you know, they were like, yeah, they should f- serve their full sentence. If they asked how long should they be involuntarily hospitalized if they were a healthy control, they said um, it the reduction from baseline was 20%. So if the baseline was 10 years committed, does that make sense? Then they were like, okay, well, this person's healthy after they gave all that evidence. And so they're like, okay, they should spend 10 years in prison and they should only spend or some 20%, um, so two years in a hospital. But it was like a, a minimal amount of time that a hospital might help this person. Then they looked at um, the condition of a psychological disorder, and they broke it up into untreatable versus treatable. And they looked at a condition of a neurobiological disorder, and they broke it up into untreatable versus treatable. And they found that as it became more neurobiological, and as it became m- more untreatable, maybe I should say less treatable, the um, amount of involuntary hospitalization went up. So they wanted the first sort of ranking, the people who should spend the most time in the hospital would be the people who had brain scan evidence and it was argued that they couldn't be treated. Lock those people away in a mental institution. Next to that was just psychological evidence, but untreatable. Then it was neurobiological evidence treatable, and then it was psychological evidence treatable. Um, On the flip side of that, the interesting thing is that the prison term didn't perfectly track. Like it wasn't a perfect inverse relationship. It was actually that people who only had a psychological determinant on the stand were given longer prison terms um, than people on average, than people who had a a neurobiological argument. So basically showing a brain scan and saying this person did this and they couldn't help it because look at their brain, they have a different brain or they have a damaged brain or however they argued for it, um, actually did in their scenario cause the um, jurors, quote unquote, I'm putting in air quotes because they weren't real jurors, it was an experiment, to say, nope, that person shouldn't spend very much time in prison at all. We should put them in a psychiatric facility. So it's interesting. It has real world implications as to how lawyers couch the guilt or the responsibility conversation and as to who they hire. And I think that's an appropriate term because they usually get paid as to who they hire to put on the stand. Um, it's it's pretty fascinating. Nobody had actually looked at this before. Now, the interesting thing, I think, to partner with this would be to go back into the case law and go back and look at how the trials actually panned out and see if that comports. Interesting. So basically what the researchers are saying, their explanation for this, is that people liked mental health evidence. They gave, they made it seem more important. And it, you know, again, both favored and disfavored this um, defendant, depending on the options that they had available. So obviously, if somebody commits a violent crime, You're going to make a punitive um, response. But if you have the option of being involuntarily hospitalized, if there's evidence showing that there's something wrong with your brain, people are going to choose that 
over a longer prison sentence? Oh, it's a really interesting ethical question. You know, do we look at a person as their brain? Yeah. And how much are we, are we willing to allow people to blame their brain for their behavior? I think from a practical point of view, that threshold needs to be pretty high. And it mm-hmm. needs to be at the level of pathology. Otherwise, you can make an argument that no one's responsible for anything that you do. Like, yeah, we don't have free will, right? So well, how can we, we be kind responsible? Of- we kind of do that somewhere along that continuum now. I oh, mean, I know. If you look at yeah, if you look at the way that sentencing laws are written in a lot of states, crimes of passion have lower sentences carried along with them. So if somebody does something because they were emotional, like a man murders his wife because he catches her in bed with another man. Yeah. He is going to get a a lesser, a less severe sentence than somebody who did something quote unquote in cold blood. Yeah, somebody who planned out a murder over weeks or months. Yeah, absolutely. But I have, I mean, I personally, from an ethical perspective, I think that that is a little tenuous. I I, I have a problem with levels of murder when it comes down to, it's one thing, it's because, again, the the kind of uh, dimensional view of where does mental illness come into play? At what point is somebody completely out of control of their emotions? Um, that's a very complicated question that you're right. It has a lot to do with your personal ethics. I think it has to do with whether or not you're religious. I think Mm -hmm. it has to do with whether or not you really understand mental illness. You really understand neurobiology, but also what your views of the self and brain and the relationship between those two things actually is. It's super, super complicated. I think I mentioned to you guys that on an, on another episode once, we talked about this idea of the belief in pure evil. Mm-hmm. Do you guys remember yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And that people who believe in pure evil as a construct tend to also – it highly correlates with more punitive punishments and less interest in rehabilitation oh, sure. for offenders because they think, well, if a person's evil – you can't unevil Irredeemable, them. right? Yeah, must must and make waste of them before they contaminate the rest I of society. I see the problem. You evil, take pure evil. evil ways, right? Yeah, so, is, so is having an evil brain the equivalent mm-hmm. of that? Right. I mean, it's. I think it depends. Again, are you religious? And that's not the only predictor, but religiosity is a big predictor of whether or not you believe in those kinds of things. And I bet you there is some crossover there that this person is quote unquote aberrant. Well, I mean, you know, unfortunately, we have to make arbitrary cutoffs on th- processes that are a continuum, right? We we have ages of consent for voting or for whatever that are obviously the day you, you, you have your birthday, you don't become suddenly, you know, responsible or capable. And we do have this, you know, this general concept that at some point you're considered an adult and you could no longer blame your upbringing that you're kind of responsible for yourself now. You do make that transition from being a victim to being a perpetrator at some point, but if, obviously it's not instantaneous. What what other option is there? I mean, still, yeah, you're still a product of your upbringing, but at some point you have to be, you know, legally, morally, ethically responsible for yourself. It's a very complicated conversation, and I think that also lends itself to this idea of how culpable are we if our brains are aberrant. Because mm-hmm. we can all point to a, an extreme example where we're like, yeah, but that guy, I mean, yeah, you know, that guy shouldn't be held responsible. You know, we can always kind of eventualize it there. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Kara. All right, Jay. So tell us, get us updated on the methane on Mars hubbub. 
Hubbubbubbub. <laughs> like what Steve calls things a hubbub. So apparently there is a massive Mars methane mystery. <laughs> you worked on that for a while, didn't you? Right. It didn't take long. Okay. <laughs> I, did, I did try to go further, but then it just became absurd. So Na- NASA's Curiosity rover has recently analyzed Mars's atmosphere. You know, I shouldn't say recently. They've been doing this for a long time, um, seven, eight years, I think. So what they found was that there is a seasonal change to the levels of methane with a peak happening in Mars's northern hemisphere during the summer. And mm. another another reading they took was inside the Gale Crater, which is a 96-mile or 154-kilometer-wide crater on Mars, right? This thing is, is gigantic. That's where they landed, right? Remember when they were like, Gale Crater, I am in you. That was That's their right. first tweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So they detected methane surges. Now, this was happening from June 2013, um, and then it, it, a second time happened at the end of 2013 and into early 2014. So they, they detected these two surges of methane, and they're like, what's going on? Why is this happening? You might be asking, why do we care about methane on Mars? It's a life well, signature. Yes, it is, Evan. It is. So, you know, could it, lots of things could, could make it happen. You know, even though methane can be created, of course, by several geological processes, as Kara knows, methane is mostly created on Earth by microbes. And, you know, and lots of things give off methane, like humans and cattle and everything. But, but the bulk of it on Earth is on my, is coming from microbes. So we would think, yeah, that it, you know, are microbes doing this on Mars? We don't know. We want to know. Is it biology? Is it, you know, rocks hitting each other? We just don't know, but we'd like to know. Hmm. Scientists are now doubly sure about these methane readings because Europe's Mars Express orbiter detected the 2013 spike as well, which is awesome. So the two different measurements mean that we can definitely trust what we're seeing here. Mm-hmm. Scientists have traced a possible source of the June 2013 methane reading to an area that's about 310 miles or 500 kilometers east of the Gale Crater. This area is known to be geologically complicated. What does geologically complicated mean? I don't know exactly. I think there's, that means there's lots of different things going on geologically <laughs> speaking. Makes sense. That or, you know, it's complicated relationships. I don't know. Who the hell knows? So (laughs) the scientists used a computer-generated atmospheric simulation and a geological assessment to determine where the methane was coming from. Now, these are two completely separate methods. So the scientists were were happily surprised that these two independent methods pointed to the same region about 500 kilometers east of the Gale. Another remarkable thing. So right now, they're speculating that the methane could be released through Mars's permafrost when there's a partial melt and as gas pressure builds up. Another idea would be that geological stresses and even a meteorite impact could affect the amount of methane released into the atmosphere. So they have lots of ideas on on how the methane is being released. The paper that that this information was taken from does not address the origin of the methane. It's a different Uh. thing. Right. So the origin is the idea of what generated the methane. Right. So methane can exist in, in the in the crust and it could be released by different things. But we don't know what created the methane. And they were saying, look, man, th- this methane could be an eon old, you know, hundreds of thousands of years or, or older ago. This methane could have been created. It could have been trapped here or it could be as recent as last week. You know, microbes could have been eating something and and releasing methane, we just don't know. 
But it's important. Of course, where future trips to Mars should look for evidence is important because someday we're definitely going to land something on Mars that's going to dig down and basically legitimately smell the farts on Mars, right? Because some, <laughs> something is creating methane over there. Now, I find this fascinating because this is really like you could look at this as generational information or, you know, something that, that could require decades to solve the mystery of, you know, we have machines right now that are taking these readings. We're pretty damn sure methane is coming. We, we are pretty damn sure of where it's coming from, but we don't know what caused it. Now, we've talked about this. There's There is definitely water on Mars. You know, we're finding even water on the moon at this point. There is by there could very well be biology. Now, going back to what Steve was talking about, about we had something very recently smack into the earth and litter our solar system with stuff from earth. You know, even back when this happened, earth's regolith was was silly with bacteria. You're silly. I, everybody's silly. <laughs> Let's get silly. So imagine without going back so far, we don't know where originally life came from. Did it come from Earth? Did it come from another planet in our solar system? Did it come from a planet outside of our solar system? We have no idea. But to think that it, it's almost assured that Earth sent bacteria to Mars. It's almost certain of it. Now, did it survive? We don't know. But I just find this stuff amazing. Like, you know, imagine if we find bacteria there and they check it out and it has, it has Earth-like DNA. You know, like, come mm-hmm. on, that would be, that'd be mind blowing, right? Yeah. This, you know, the, the trips that we take to Mars in the next 30 years are going to answer some pretty profound questions and we could have some really amazing things happen. And I, God, I hope I'm alive to hear some answers like that. That would be cool that we may find nothing. And then the answer is, well, we don't know. Nah. <laughs> but we still, bottom line, we still don't know if the methane has a biological or a geological origin. Right. Is it rocks yeah. or is it farts? We yeah. don't know, Steve. Right. Is that going to require boots on the ground or are our probes and our explorers it depends on gonna, the probe. find it? Yeah, we could we could answer those questions purely with robotic probes if we design them with, the, with those capabilities. But it probably would be faster if we had people there. All right. Let's move on. Bob. Yes. So we're going to come – this news item that you're going to talk about combines two things that you love, artificial intelligence and material science. Yes, yes. Material science care. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Material uh, material science researchers have started taking advantage of deep learning techniques with the potential of quickly predicting which types of graphene-like structures out of many billions could be useful. So this is from the University of Missouri researchers in the College of Engineering, and the study was published in Computational Materials. The name of the study was... Band gap prediction by deep learning in configurationally hybridized graphene and boron nitride. Oh, yeah. Love that title. So it's so much more fascinating than that title uh, leads you to believe. This is probably, this is probably, I think, the first time that material science has taken advantage of deep learning. And uh, so, yes, deep learning. This has been discussed on the show here and there. Deep learning is a type of machine learning, which is itself a subset of artificial intelligence. Got that? So it, it not only relies on what you would expect. From machine learning, like algorithms and and self modification, but it also uses completely unstructured input data, um, and it uses these these layers of algorithms that to categorize and classify uh, the this raw data that it's that's being input. And uh, so this is why it's it's often called 
structured learning or hierarchical learning. So now this, this mimicry of the human brain has proved immensely powerful. I mean, first off, for me, it's produced unbeatable chess and go champions. Deep learning has consumed the automotive world with almost every big car manufacturer in the world joining forces uh, with a technology company to be the first ones to, to ride that huge wave into the future. Because um, if you think about it, uh, autonomous cars, we know how, how everyone's talking about them and how they have such a bright future. But um, talking about inputting unstructured data, that's what the environment is. That's what roads are and cities um, and highways. That's all massive amounts of unstructured data. And that's why they're so good, so good with it. How about this one? In the world of video manipulation, uh, the, the so-called deep fake technology developed with deep learning techniques can now put celebrities' faces onto pornographic actors' bodies. And that was years ago. So, I mean, how long until the gold standard that we now call video evidence is absolutely meaningless and laughable? Um, and now material science itself is dabbling in deep learning. So that the, re the research that this team was doing involved graphene. Another thing we've talked about a bunch of times, the, that, that wonderful allotrope of carbon, right, that forms two-dimensional sheets of magic, essentially. I mean, it, it's really incredible. It has so many varied off-the-charts properties. It's, a, it's essentially a foregone conclusion that this is going to be the future wonder material, potentially dwarfing even semiconductors in their utility. Um, it's hard to say exactly how it's going to be used, but the properties are just so amazing. So, so pure, but these pure sheets of graphene, it's not, that's not the only form that's interesting. You could actually dope graphene, uh, the, you know, the carbon atoms that compose graphene with other atoms, non-carbon atoms. You could put them in there in specific quantities and configurations. Um, you could do that at the atomic scale or the larger nanoscale. And what happens is you, if you do it properly, you can get amazing mechanical or electronic properties just become – emerge out of the, this new material. But the problem is that you know to create all of these possible configurations and variations and then testing them can take years and years just to scratch the surface. I mean there's literally billions of possibilities. So, so what they did was to deal with this and use deep learning, what they did was they input a few thousand different types of already known graphene types, right? So we've got, we've got all these different types of graph graphene that we've already created and tested and we know what their properties are. And they take that data and they feed that into their deep learning models so that the deep learning can then look at what the structure, the specific structure of the graphene is and what the properties were. And then just kind of like think about that for – it took two days actually for the computer systems to, to look at this information and, uh, and look at all the other possible types of graphene that could be created and doped with other non-carbon atoms. And it, oh, after two days, it was able to predict the properties of uh, like billions or, or many, many millions of these other possible types of doped graphene. No testing required. The computer basically spits out, well, okay, if you have this configuration, th these are the properties that it will likely have. Once they find something that has amazing properties, even more amazing than regular graphene, then they could actually – uh, create it and, and test it on their own. And basically, so you're just, you're just creating the ones that have the highest probability of being really useful. Uh, just, just an amazing, uh, development and, uh, the, the potential is just off the hook. So, uh, Jianlin Cheng uh, is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science, um, said, give an intelligent computer system any design and it can predict the properties. This trend is emerging in the material science field. It's a great example of applying artificial intelligence to change the standard process of material design in this field. 
And so, and so that's where we are. Uh, and it's really just the beginning of this type of research. Uh, but the, the potential is just so fascinating and exciting because material science touches everything, right? I mean, OLED TVs, right, Steve? Yep. Touch screens, smartphones, solar cells, sex toys, you name it. Material <laughs> science can impact that product. Yeah, you said sex toys and, or and I service. started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, we've been talking about the fact that AI is one of these technologies that's truly transformative. You know, the way oh, they're God. using, you know, deep learning. I, I just heard, you know hearing news stories like this all the time. Like just recently, a uh, a young researcher, uh, a, I think it was just a graduate student or undergraduate student, was able to look at Kepler data and then using one of these deep learning algorithms was able to find new exoplanets. New exoplanets. There you yep, go. They found exactly. They found two exoplanets that the astronomers missed. And that, that's just that's just scratching the surface. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right, Jay. Hi. Who's that noisy time? <laughs> noisy. Last week, I played mm. this noisy. Slot car. All right, so there's definitely, definitely an electrical vibe to that noise. That's correct. There's something happening. Yes, there's something electrical. happening. Yeah. Okay, so got quite a, quite a good response off of this one uh, that we're all across the board. So I'll just, I'll just list a few here. So Patrick Carr wrote in and said, Hey, Jay, great show as always. I think the noisy is the sound of the jet-mounted laser striking the giant Jiffy Pop full of popcorn in Professor Hathaway's <laughs> house at the end of the movie Real Genius. Oh, yeah. One of the greatest that movies That was a fun movie. That was, that a, was fun a fun movie. movie. That movie mm-hmm. was great. They also did that. They fall into that total trope of all the nerdy girls are actually gorgeous models. Oh, yeah. Know? Yeah, they just have to take off their glasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So the Solomon family uh, sent in a guest. They said, since I bombed so badly last time, my mm. wife has taken over guessing for this week. She believes that Noisy is the frother on an espresso cappuccino machine. Mm. That, that was sent mm. in by Jason. That is not correct, my friend. Liz Winfrey Ventura wrote in and said, My mm. eight-year-old son Ben thinks it sounds like some, someone dragging a bucket along a concrete floor. I asked him if it had anything in it, and he said it was empty because if you had something in it, you would also hear splashing. I thought that was a good answer. Clever. These are all incorrect. And then we have uh, – I'm going to get right into it because – Yeah, get the correct answer. Now, obviously, there, this is something to do with electricity, correct? Yeah. You guys know that. Yes. All right, so – Crackle, crackle. I have a winner, but then I have someone who, who wrote in a wonderful explanation. So the winner was Carl Braun. Uh, Carl said, that sounds like an arc flash from a transformer. Uh, feels like I've seen huh. this video. Um, and, he, and he also remembers the guy whooping at the end, which is funny. Um, so let me just – Play this for you again, then I'll give you the, the the bigger explanation. So Glenn Alert, his last name is E L E R T, right? E Alert. He said, "Now this is really cool. This will really help you understand what this is. It's a several thousand volt AC arc at at a power distribution center. So you know those those power." When you see like a power station, you're driving by and you just see a whole bunch of like electricity looking things yes. on the side of the road. That's called I asked a pa- you about that. That's Remember a distri- last week? Yeah, we were just talking about this. So it's a distribution substation or a power station. So this is what he wrote. Inductance is the electrical analog to mass. 
A moving object wants to keep moving because it has mass. An electric current wants to keep flowing through a circuit because the circuit has inductance. A large power, uh, a large power distribution network has a huge inductance. When you try to break a circuit like this, the current has a tendency to keep flowing through the break by forming a literal arc of plasma in the air. So this is what happens. They need to release this energy in order to do something at the, at the power distribution center, right? They, so they have to release all the power that's in that, that structure that you see. But they have to break an existing circuit that has power flowing through it. Now, you'd think they'd just turn this machine off. But, and I'm sure that they do, but I think it retains energy. So they, they literally physically move two poles away from each other that are touching each other that power is flowing through. This is why you do not climb in and about and amongst those things. This is why they say, stay the hell away from this power station because they're all dangerous. Mm-hmm. So these two poles that are touching each other just swing away from each other. And when they, when they stop touching each other, a giant electrical arc goes from one of them to the other and the power continues to flow. It goes right through the air. You should look up a video about, about this power station or distribution substation power arc. Um, it's a really cool video. The guy at the end is not hurt in any way. So that was last week's. Now, before I move on to this week's, I have a correction. So we have a correction sent in by a listener named Elvin Lusick. And Elvin says, hi, Jay, love the show. Met you in Australia. A great pleasure for me. Just a correction to the sound that the Solomon family incorrectly guessed was a 2400 baud modem connecting. You didn't play the 2400 baud sound. The sound you played has the classic boing boing sound, which was in a 28.8K modem or later. I can't tell exactly because uh, I didn't play the whole sound towards the end. And he apologizes for being pedantic, and that's quite fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think it's awesome that someone could listen to the uh, the sound of a dial-up happening, a dial-up modem, and know that it isn't the one that I said. That that's you know because we we all love science and technology, and we're all geeks here. So there's my correction. Not that big of a correction, but still, nonetheless, it's important to get things right. Now, Steve, mm-hmm. I have a noisy for this week. I'm proud of you. Okay, I'm going to play it now. Okay. So there is background noise there that you could hear. And... This this is what it is. You just got to tell me what this is. There's no tricks involved. This is something specific. If you think you know what this week's noisy is, or if you heard something really cool, and you know you did because there's way too many of you for some of you not to have heard something cool as you hear this or soon after, email me that noisy and your guesses at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week. Columbia University. All right, guys, it is university application time. And if you haven't thought about it yet, you should really look into Columbia University School of General Studies because, of course, there's a world-renowned faculty. And also, you'll get personalized advice from mentors dedicated to meeting the unique needs of non-traditional students. 
Students are either just beginning their undergraduate educations or resuming them after a break from schools. They've had careers, served in the military, raised families, and led rewarding lives. And now, obtaining an Ivy League college education is their next milestone. Yeah, general studies students possess real-world experience, and it's that experience with research-backed support programs that inspire this greater desire for academic success along the journey to earning a prestigious Columbia University degree. So to discover how you can continue your story, visit gs.columbia.edu slash podcast. Fall regular decision application deadline is June 1st, so apply today. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, let's go on to some questions and emails. We have to get caught up on a few corrections and follow-ups. So the item that we got emailed most about this past week was our uh, comments about the NASA spacesuits and the fact that they had to cancel the first all-woman EVA because they only had one suit of an appropriate size. So we were we were making the quick point. This was an aside. This wasn't like a deep dive that we prepped, but we were making the quick point that this stemmed from the fact that NASA doesn't have enough EVA suits for their female astronauts. However, a lot of people wrote in essentially to say, "Hey, hold on a minute. The story's more complicated than that. This wasn't about you know that wasn't about that issue. It was it was about safety or something else." But Here's the actual full story. Yes, of course, the story was more complicated than that. I've done as much research as I can in the intervening week. I think I still don't have the full story. I'm sure there's a lot of nuances to the decision-making process. But the thing is, what, what we said is still true. It's like the things that people were saying to us were true but not relevant to our point. So let me quickly go over a brief history of NASA spacesuits. Right. So, Jay, initially you said that the suits were custom made. That was true of the Apollo program. Uh, but they they did custom like the Mercury, the early like Mercury astronauts, I think even into the Apollo program. They made the suits uh, custom made for each astronaut. But when we got into the space shuttle error and we NASA expanded the number of astronauts, it was no longer cost effective to have an individual custom-made suit for every astronaut. So they went with what they called the Mr. Potato Head model, where they had like upper bodies and lower bodies and arms and helmets, and you basically mix and match to suit Kind of what I suggested. Yeah. So they had extra small, small, medium, large, and extra large suits. So this is now 40 years ago, right? They made a bunch of suits, but – there were two problems at that time. One was they were starting to get female astronauts and they knew they needed to make smaller suits. So they just basically made smaller versions of the male spacesuit. Of course pro- they did. The problem is women have different body proportions. They tend to have narrower shoulders and wider hips. And the spacesuits really need to fit well in order for you to function in them. And so this was a problem. They didn't really fit the female astronauts as well. The other problem is is that NASA's budget was cut, and they had to cut their budget specifically for their spacesuits. And they made the decision to nix the extra small and small sizes and keep the extra large. So they basically skewed the spacesuits deliberately given their resources towards towards men because they had more male astronauts at the time. Again, this is 40 years ago. 
these these spacesuits were rated for 15 years. I don't think they were expecting that we would be using the same EVA suits 40 years later, but we are. So here we are 40 years That's later. Scary. We've been losing spacesuits over time. We lost some with the Challenger shuttle, for example. We lost one when they blew up in one of those cargo rockets um, going to this, the space station. And so we we have very few suits of the ones we have. We have few. We don't have enough of the smaller sizes. Still, about a third of the female astronauts don't have any suit that could fit fit them. In the space shuttle era, it wasn't as big of an issue because most of the astronauts could stay in the shuttle and can operate the the arm or do stuff without having to go EVA. But now that we're in the pure ISS stage, pretty much every member of the ISS does EVAs. So if you if we're sending an astronaut into space, they will need to have a spacesuit that can fit them in order to do their job. But we just don't have enough. Now, the ISS currently has six spacesuits on board, two medium, two large, and two extra large. However, one of the mediums and one of the extra large larges are backup suits. They are not ready to go. And that doesn't just mean that it would take time to get them ready. It means NASA can't really guarantee that they would work. They are just emergency backup suits. They could work, but they're not guaranteed, meaning they could leak. Who knows? We just don't – we can't guarantee that they would function. So now we get to the, the EVA situation. The two female astronauts were planning to use one of the medium and one of the large suits. Uh, one of the female astronauts trained on Earth in a medium and a large, but two weeks ago she did her first spacewalk in a medium suit, and she said, you know what? This is the size that I need. I need – because you know, they – once you get into zero G, your body changes and you and then you really know what size suit you need. So she mm-hmm. said a full week ahead of the spacewalk, you know what? I need – I really want to do this with a medium suit, not the large. Because um, I'm not functional in this suit. It's too big. That's the size that she needed. Mm-hmm. And so they had to make the decision of whether or not they were going to activate their backup medium suit or just change the roster and swap her out for a guy who could fit into the large suit. And that's the decision that they collectively made. Now, the mm-hmm. astronaut says that she p- was partly her decision. It wasn't fully her decision. She says, quote, it was partly her decision. Sure. None Very of that, diplomatic. Yeah. None of, <laughs> yeah. That, none of that obviates the underlying issue that we were talking about, that that the you know one of the core problems is that NASA's spacesuits are outdated. We are still mm-hmm. years away from updating them, from getting new ones. They are developing new seat suits, but they're years away. They they were never meant to to be used for forty years, and essentially we're still dealing with the male centric NASA of forty years ago, and that was yeah. absolutely a factor in this episode: the fact that they couldn't EVA two women at the same time. Even though, yes, there was the decision-making process about this specific decision was more complicated, but still the backdrop is exactly what we said. It's a, the, because there aren't – these suits are old and they're skewed towards the male sizes, period. Yeah. That's the case. Yeah. So anyway, don't get con- – you know, so it's, it's, there's always like um, a narrative you know, with these stories. And so this narrative was going around that, oh, this is – uh, feminist backlash and it's not correct. It's like, no, actually the story is totally correct. 
and and I just gave it to you in even more detail. The more I looked into it, actually, the worse it got. You know, not, oh, it didn't okay. get better. It got worse. It was like not only did they not have enough, they specifically decided to scrap the smaller sizes, and they were never really form-fitted for women astronauts in the first anyway, place. Yeah. They were always form-fitted for males. Um, so we definitely need to update the suits to reflect the current diversity of astronauts that we're putting up into space. And uh, if I, you know, obviously, like, I was going hard on this, and I think that that's why we got <laughs> so many emails back. But if I was sounding emotional at all about it, and the things that I was saying were, like, about entrenched male-centric systems, institutions, yeah. right? I wasn't saying NASA today is overtly sexist. I wasn't saying there is a grand conspiracy within NASA to suppress women from doing all the things that men can do. Of course not. What I was saying is that the sexism societally is yeah. so entrenched and the, the, the centrism that the man size, shape, the needs of men are the norm and that something for a woman is the other is so entrenched that you see it bleeding out everywhere. Yeah. I used a great example at my old gym where they had a poster, you know, those like anatomical posters. I have one, I'm looking at one right now of the brain on my wall in my office, but there's one at the, at the gym that was like the muscular system and then next to it, the women's muscular system. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's like a yeah. man just has muscles. A woman has woman's muscles. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Like, are you serious right. with this? I know. <laughs> It's so subtle, like yeah. And this but is like everywhere. This is, it's it hasn't worked its way through the system yet. We're still mm -hmm. dealing mm -hmm. with the sexism of forty years ago. Mm -hmm. And I do give NASA credit. NASA is very diverse today, but still they're we're dealing with the the legacy. You know, of well, it and they should have past. honestly. They should have thought of the optics of this. They yes. were heavily promoting. It was bad PR. Was the they blew first it. ever all female spacewalk, and they canceled it for reasons that, of course, were going to be scrutinized. Yeah, it, it, it just, just highlighted yeah. it highlighted Absolutely. the underlying problem, mm. even if it was an, it wasn't entirely due to it. Sure. Okay. Two quick corrections. So, science or fiction? A few weeks back, remember we talked about Winston Churchill's bipolar disorder. I remember yes. getting it wrong. Yeah, so <laughs> me too. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to give you guys a mulligan on this one because <gasps> oh, the rare mulligan. Has this you know, ever happened before? Uh, once or twice. Was okay. I on that show, Steve? No, I think that might have been the one you missed, Jay. Damn. So oh. here's the thing, oh, <laughs> because this is one of those things where the story's complicated and everyone gets it wrong, and so I sourced it as well as I could, and the, and reliable sources, you know, peer-reviewed papers were saying, yeah. Winston huh. Churchill's doctor diagnosed him with bipolar disorder. But here's the thing. It turns out this is mostly due to a later paper that was uh, – that interpreted the doctor's statements in that way but really didn't justify that claim. And if you go to Churchill's doctor's original source, he never uses the term bipolar and in fact, he probably only diagnosed him with depression, not mm. manic depression or any version of it. So I could not find anything original, any primary source that backed up this notion. I think this is one of those things where somebody later made a conclusion and everybody references that conclusion. Because yeah. it was peer-reviewed, mm -hmm. but yeah. still it, it was probably flawed. So it was an error that just got propagated everywhere. So now even reliable sources are quoting the false information. Gee whiz. 
But and it took me a while. Like I had to go back and forth with this guy. We actually worked together because he to find like an actual original source and you know, he sent me like a PDF of the book and I had to go through it. And it's like, holy shit, yeah, it's he never mentions anything to deal with mania or bipolar or manic depression. It's only depression. So anyway, there you go. So I have to give you guys a mulligan Good on time. that. I like that correction. I like those kinds yeah. of corrections. Yeah, because, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. they help us it, out. It, it, happens. <laughs> it happens. And then the other one is uh, I think I talked about the the Ukraine and several people emailed us say it's just Ukraine. Oh, right, because that has like SS, uh, USSR roots. Let's hope George didn't hear it. Hey, He'll never let yeah. that down. <laughs> a couple people even mentioned that George would be upset if you said that. But at first, it seems like really pedantic. It's like it's not the rhythmics, it's your rhythmics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, because it was like the Ukrainian blah, 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 Republic yeah. of, of the Soviet Union, that yeah. triggers that connection. For Ukrainians, mm-hmm. and the they Soviet really are—they mm-hmm. really wanted to. It's just Ukraine because the Ukraine mm-hmm. ties it to the Soviet Union. So, our apologies—I didn't know that. You learn something new with the doing the show all the time. I will try to remember to refer to it just as Ukraine from now on. And I guess you know, you think about it, you think, oh, it's a subtle error, but like if you said the Germany, yeah, it, you know, to a Ger- it just sounds ridiculous if that's not the way you're it's, supposed to say it. You know what it reminds me of? I have a really good friend, and I don't want to call him out. He's he's British, and he was doing a science thing on his Instagram. Yeah. And he was at some big school event, and he was like, look, we all did the Mexican wave. And I reached out to him. You know, like the wave that people do at stadiums. And I reached out to him, and I was like, wow, that is so racist. And he was like, oh, my God, that's racist. That's what everyone in the UK calls it. Wow. Really? And I was like, what? And I was like, it's probably actually not racist at all. Like, it's just one of those things. But to our ears, it sounds really racist. And then he came to the US and did some events in Southern California. And he was like, I was so freaked out that I was going to say the Mexican wave, knowing that there were so many, you know, actual Mexican kids yeah. in the audience. Like, and I'm like, no, yeah, in the US, it's just the wave. It's the wave. Right. It's like, it's kind of like saying Montezuma's <laughs> revenge, you know? Yeah. You know, there's, there's yeah. things that is, there has there has been a cultural change, mm-hmm. yeah, where or like an Indian giver. There's like all these phrases yeah. in our colloquial mm-hmm. speech that are, do have racist, you know, roots. Of it course. still crops up. It's there. I still say like to gyp somebody out of something. That's yes, a yeah. total right. slur. Gypsy. Yeah, uh-huh. against gypsies, but you don't like you just don't realize it. One uh, other email. This should be quick, but this is fun. I have to do this one. It's fun. This is I, I call I'm calling this flat Earth fail. So uh, the emailer <laughs> writes us, flat earth ocean cruise to edge of the world planned for 2020. Looks like the, fat, the flat earthers are planning to a cruise in 2020 to the edge of the world. I am so looking forward to hearing all of the logical fallacies in their explanation of why what they find proves their claims, or more likely why the cruise will have to be canceled. Right. So yeah, that what they're going to sail to what the edge of the Earth? Of course, they're going to hit the That's Antarctic ice wall. Yeah, they want but, to see the ring. The ring. Yeah. The, the so ring of course, that's, you know, no matter what direction you go in, right? You should eventually hit the ice wall. So they have to figure out a way to explain why that's not going to happen. That there's there's just, so many outs. It could be the navigation. You know, it could be yeah. you know you know the the, uh, the the ship's captain could be so many ways out of this. It's like captain he, he's not taking us where we where we want to go and blah. It's part of the yeah, conspiracy. They're, they're chartering it. But here's the thing. There are so many things that <laughs> that flat earthers can do themselves you know, to prove that the earth is 
flat. And yep. of course, oh, yeah. they would actually end up proving that it's round. You just get in a boat and go. Yeah, send up a camera and, and a rocket. I mean, yeah. you just go and do let things. us know when there's nothing left to go. You won't to. be able to see them anymore. <laughs> no, Kara, because they they yes. these people like they're being controlled. If if you take a boat to the edge, they use uh-huh. they use mind control to make you not know that you're at the edge. That's what's actually no, I mean, going on. No, I mean if you're standing on the beach, yeah. And somebody goes in a boat due like exactly perpendicular to the beach, you will actually see that in the line of sight they start to go down yeah. as they approach the horizon. Like that's an easy test. Right. Well, they will claim that if you have like a, a good like a telescope or a real powerful lens that, that you, you can track do, if you zoom you could zoom in tight enough, you they won't disappear. Yeah, but I they say. never do it. They never do the right. They just <laughs> yeah. say that. If you. All right. So I never – I haven't watched the whole movie Behind the Curve on, on Netflix, which is about flat earthers. But yeah. in that show, they they do show a prominent flat earther doing an experiment, right? This yes. Bob Nodell who oh, does yeah. this experiment where they use a gyroscope, uh, a laser gyroscope. And the idea is that it's supposed to stay stationary. Now, if the earth is rotating on its axis, if it's a or sphere curving. it's rotating. Curving down. Then – no, this is the gyroscope one. Then okay. what should happen is the gyroscope itself will rotate at 15 degrees per hour. It will drift until it makes a complete revolution, right? Mm-hmm. So they were, they're doing the experiment on the show and they find a 15 degree per hour drift. What? So the guy – the flat earther set up an experiment that mm-hmm. if he were correct, it would have proven that the world was, was not a rotating sphere. And he actually proved that it mm-hmm. was. So and what was his justification? His yeah, reaction was, wow, isn't that interesting? Hmm, interesting. <laughs> I'll have to look Science could that. never wow. explain that. Yeah, I'll have to do more hmm, research. You know, the, the that tides is come really in, the tides interesting. Go yeah. So, <laughs> but, but even after that, he didn't like have – you know, he didn't. He didn't wake up. The scales didn't fall from his eyes. He just waited. It just took him a while to rationalize it, and then produced a YouTube video for uh, four hours explaining why <laughs> why the, the experiment failed. You know, but there's like even when he does the experiment himself, pl- proves the world is a rotating sphere. They just rationalize it away. So his moment of clarity, he managed to make it fade and yeah. go away. It's like the dowsers where it doesn't work. Like, huh? Interesting. <laughs> Give me five minutes. I need to come up with a reason to justify why I totally failed, you know? Yeah. It's, oh, too many skeptics in the room and their yeah. power made it fail. There we go. <laughs> oh, that's a real excuse that we've heard. Yeah, that. It is. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Like one thing that <laughs> Randy told us was that, you know, the, the, a lot of these people will leave and like an hour later. Yeah. They come they, back with the, the excuse. They have rationalized, you know, they can they can explain it away in some, some manner or other. But, you know, bottom line is these people that – they don't want to see it. They're never going to see it if they're not capable yeah. of admitting that they're wrong. You know, like they, they've they've drank they drank the Kool Aid, and it's never going to be undrunk. I mean, if you're a flat earther, you've already proven that you're delusional, right? So, the idea that the, an, a, an experiment they do themselves doesn't convince them is not surprising. Oh yeah, they're only looking for confirmatory evidence. That's right. right. That Kool Aid is real strong. Yeah. Okay. Let's go on to science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. 
No theme this week. I think it's the first time in a couple weeks where I'm just doing some straight-up news items. Are you guys ready? I am ready. Mm-hmm. All right. Item number one. Researchers have observed for the first time mountain gorillas adorning and sometimes even covering their dead. Item number two. A new study finds that brain damage continues even six weeks after stopping heavy drinking or heavy alcohol use. And item number three. Chemists have come up with a method for treating lead pipes that makes them safe to use for drinking water within a few hours compared to the couple of years current methods require. Bob, why don't you go first? Okay, so uh, let's see. We'll start from the bottom here. Uh, treating lead pipes that make them safe in a few hours. Sure, some chemical you throw down there that coats it. Yeah, you know, the hell else do you have to say about <laughs> it? I mean, it's like it's nothing's not breaking in a lot of physics. Let's look at number two. Brain damage continues six weeks. Seems uh, uh, excessive. Six weeks is a long time. What do you mean by heavy alcohol use? I I assume that would be extremely heavy alcohol abuse to to cause brain damage for six weeks after you stop. But the one I just can't buy is is the the gorillas adorning and sometimes even covering their dead. Yeah, I'm just not buying that. Sorry, fiction. Okay, Jay. Ah, Bob picked the mountain gorilla one. I was I don't know that mm. one. That was one I wasn't like really hurting on that much. Backwards like Bob did. Okay, so the chemists have come up with a method for treating lead pipes to make them safe for drinking water. So in a few hours compared to a couple of years, current methods require. So what that, what method would take two years to treat a lead pipe? One. And two, why is anybody using lead pipes? Like that's just ridiculous at this point. I mean maybe – No, no. They, they, they already have lead pipes. Like flint. Like the pipes are made of lead. Yeah. In the city. They can't just rip them all out. It's too expensive. Oh, God. That's terrible. What would they do? Like Bob said, they would put a chemical down there like that would what? That would coat the pipe. I mean, I imagine like if they had to fill all the pipes up with this chemical and then leave it there. And like, how could you even do that? You know, like if people are, are using the pipes, I don't know. That one's bothering me a lot. And then the one here about the brain damage continues six weeks after stopping heavy alcohol use. I could see that. I mean, that one doesn't really bother me that much. I agree with Bob, you know. Is it, you know, even if you, what if you have one beer? Are you going to have brain damage resulting six weeks after you've just even having one beer? Or is it like continued use? I think there's a d- details that we don't have here, but I could It s- says heavy alcohol use. Yeah, but what's heavy? You know, like, is that a term? Not safe? one beer. Yeah, it's a term. One drink a day, five drinks a day. Little nip or two Let's after see. dinner. What are, you, what are we talking here? Shots? What's happening? Vodka? Are we talking like, you know, half a bottle of bourbon or are we talking sipping some brandy after a meal, you know? You know, just like daily use, regular alcohol consumption. Mm. Okay. So I would say that one is science because I bet you other things are happening. It's not just the alcohol in your blood that's affecting your brain. It could, you know, it could be like the damage done to your liver could have continued damage, could, could do continued damage to your brain. So I think that one is absolutely science. So it's between number one and number three. This first one here about the, about the gorillas adorning and sometimes even covering their dead. I mean, why is that so bad? Why is that such a big deal? They're aware, you know, like they can cover them with, with flowers or, or plants and stuff. Who knows? I don't know why that one isn't bothering me like it bothered Bob. I'm just – whatever. Look, I'm doing so bad this year already. already. Um, I'm just going to go – Redly. I'm doing bad already. Redly. Did you get that, Kara? Mm-hmm. Orangely. Redly. Eh, Redly. Orangely. That doesn't qualify. I, listen, I'm talking, okay? Thank you. <laughs> I'll, I, will pick, I will pick number three, Evan. 
The one about the uh, the the lead pipes and the chemists. I don't believe that chemists exist. They, the, pipes. No the pipes. <laughs> the pipes. The pipes. The pipes. The pipes are coming. Evan. Mm. Well, how about I just jump right to the one I think is fiction? Is that okay? Go ahead. Sure. Right yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. I have to go with Bob. Whoa. A, yeah. So I, I got it. It's this gorilla. So I th- think the, it's a very, I think, uniquely human thing to adorn and cover our dead. I think we do it for these sort of purposes of getting rid of the body so it doesn't, frankly, start to stink up the joint. And I don't know that gorillas care so much about that. And, you know, we're used to kind of dressing people up in all sorts of things, whereas gorillas, I don't see them, you know, you don't see gorillas walking around with flowers in their hairs normally when they're alive and stuff. Why would they do it in death? It just doesn't make a lot of sense in that regard. Uh, so too, too much anthropomorphism going on there, I think. And uh, that one will be the fiction. And Kara. Immediately, I wanted to say that the brain damage one was the fiction because I thought maybe you flipped it around and that actually if you stop drinking, maybe the study was that within six weeks, you already saw recovery in the brain or something like that. Um, Or you already saw neurogenesis or, you know, like um, I was hoping that this would be like a hopeful study. And nobody's really talked about that one. That said, alcohol is horrible. Like it's so can cause so much terrible damage. And so I also it's one of those like six and one half a dozen. It could be very likely. I'm trying to think of the mechanism by which it would do that. But of course, there's so many downstream effects when you kill brain cells that could continue to take place. So now I've you've got me rethinking this one because of both of your insights about the gorillas because at first I was like well yeah great ape like they're gonna they're gonna have some very sophisticated behaviors around socialization around things like death but when I start to think about death rituals in the animal kingdom I think we make them seem more intense than they are crows have death rituals but really they're just warning ritual like most animal death rituals are about warning other members of the species to steer clear of this area or to do something like like something bad happened here and I it's it seems risky so don't come near it so I'm not sure what burial that you're right that seems really sophisticated burial and and Evan the thing you said about adornment they don't wear jewelry in life they don't use any sort of paints they don't I mean the most is just they groom each other so I think that we would have found some example of ritualistic adornment in life before we found it in death. So I think I might have to go with those two guys on that one. Damn. You sold me. Mm. Oh, boy. Mm. Hope I don't disappoint. But if it's a brain damage one, I'm going to be pissed. Bob, I hope you don't disappoint <laughs> us here. All right. So you're really doubling down on that one. So let's go to number two. The second one, since you all agree on that one, a new study finds that brain damage continues even six weeks after stopping heavy alcohol use. You all think this one is science. And this one is science. All right. Oh. Yeah, baby. All right. Yeah, so this is a study. This is actually a parallel study in people Six and weeks. rats. Uh, and in the, the people, these were people who had a drug use disorder, alcohol use disorder, and they uh, had to come in inpatient so that they could guarantee that they were not using any substances during the period of the study. And they looked at their brains. And they were able to show that there was microstructural, mainly white matter damage, actually, progressively in the uh, people who were using alcohol. And those changes continued to progress for six weeks after stopping Jesus. drinking. So, 
Yeah, alcohol is is neurotoxic. You know, it's really a bad mm-hmm. substance. I'm sure, you know, Kara. Like you see, you know, clinically people who are uh, long term alcoholics, and yeah, it's like you could see the ravaging effects that it has on the body as a whole. Inclu- brain, yeah, brain, including and body. the brain, yeah, including mm-hmm. the brain. Um, you know, like just the people, the way they talk, the way they carry themselves. You could tell that the brain's not a hundred percent there, even and when they've course- recovered. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that's just like, that's when they don't go as far as to get, what is it, uh, like Wernicke Korsakovs, like mm-hmm. these really bad yikes. kind of yikes, not probably completely not reversible problems. Yeah, although that one is from uh, vitamin deficiency, but you know, the thiamine. But it happens but with it happens, people who, yeah, cause they yeah, just, they who get, go on benders all the time. Kara, how often do you drink? I don't drink. Not at all. At huh? all, ever. No, I, haven't, I don't think I've had a drop of alcohol since I was like 17. She's a teetotaler. Yeah. 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 Or maybe maybe I tried in my, my like mid twenties. I had like a a coffee with Kahlua and was like, ugh. Yeah, I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> I just don't like it. Steve, you don't drink either, do you? No, not no. at all. No, yeah, not a drop. Yep, don't don't like it. Me no likey. All right, let's go back to number one. Researchers have observed for the first time mountain gorillas adorning and sometimes even covering their dead. You guys, uh, Bob, Evan, and Carrie, you think this one is a fiction? Jay, you think this one is science? So I hear what you're saying about animals, but these are mountain gorillas, guys. Yeah, yeah but we know a lot about chimpanzees and bonobos, and they don't You're do it either. talking about Neanderthals, dude. <laughs> I don't even think like just throwing some leaves on them and you know putting some rocks at their feet. You wouldn't think that the, can see a gorilla doing that. No, nope. I mean, could see it, but <laughs> don't think so. This one is. You ready? Yeah. The fiction. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But of course. So what the study showed, the study did look at um, the the behavior of gorillas surrounding death of gorillas that they had a close social bond to in life. And what the gorillas do is they will groom dead bodies. You guys pretty much got it. You've watched too many nature shows. They (laughs) They will groom the corpse. They will sleep with them. In one yeah. case, a child tried to nurse from its dead mother, oh, sad, even though so it had already weaned. So it was just a anxiety type of behavior because yeah. it wasn't still breastfeeding. They will be, they will treat the corpses of gorillas they were close to in life different than the corpses of gorillas from other troops. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so they definitely do have a social connection, and it does affect their behavior. And it's usually like they do about two days, you know, of this kind of mourning behavior of trying to process and deal with, you know, and wrap their head around the fact that, yeah, this they're not coming back. This gorilla is not is different now. (laughs) Like they're not alive. Have you guys seen Jane? The the Nat Geo documentary with all the found footage of Jane Goodall. There's a beautiful scene in it with a juvenile gorilla that dies and the mother just can't let go. Yeah. 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 I mean, it does. It's funny because we talk about anthropomorphizing. Sure, adorning and covering, that would be anthropomorphizing. That was chimpanzees, though, you're talking about. But yeah, those chimpanzees. But like you watch this and you don't have to anthropomorphize it. You're like, that mother isn't mourning. Yeah, 100%. For sure. So yeah, very interesting. But yeah, but I had to push it just far enough to make it clearly fake. (laughs) It was hard. That was a hard one, but you guys sniffed it out. All right, let's go to number three. Chemists have come up with a method for treating lead pipes that makes them safe to use for drinking water in a few hours compared to the couple of years current methods require. This one is science. This still strikes me as crazy, but 
this is where we are. So, Kara, you're absolutely correct. So most of the water mains are iron, but the distribution pipes that go to individual homes in lots of older cities are lead. And they knew at the time that this was a problem. And they had a, but they, their solution was let's do it anyway. Well, there's, <laughs> well yeah, so they'll, they'll do it anyway, but they'll treat the water with a chemical that will bind with the lead and form a scaly seal. And then once that scale forms, the lead won't leach into the water anymore. So they, they use phosphates, right? So the phosphates react with the lead and forms a scale. So they treat the water until the scale is thick enough and then it's safe for drinking water. The problem is like with Flint, what happened was they switched the water supply and the new water supply didn't have the phosphates in it and they stopped their corrosion control measures. And so the scale eventually corroded away and then the lead started leaching back into the water. That's what happened. Genius decided to do that. Yeah, just, you know, but it does seem like kind of a time bomb going off. Yeah, we're going to have this poison that we're putting our drinking water in, but we're just going to sort of protect it a little bit with this scale. and But we have to maintain it. And if we don't maintain it, if somebody forgets to do it, the lead's going to be back in the water. It seems like a setup for failure to me. But of course, it would be very expensive. This would be a huge infrastructure project to switch out all of the lead pipes with more modern pipes that are safer. But we have to do it. It's just that we're going to have to bite the bullet. And this needs to be a major infrastructure project for our country. But we just have to do it. But this is what chemists came up with. It's actually not a new chemical. They do something else. Can anybody guess what they do to the pipes to mm. accelerate the scale formation? It's they, still, it's, it's still not chemical, so it must no, be electrical. Heat, yeah, it's do, electrical. It it's electrical. Mm. Exactly. They create this circuit in the pipe. They put a wire through the pipes that can that complete a circuit. And when they they have the circuit going, the scale forms within hours rather than years. Oh wow, genius. Brilliant. So this could this would be massively money saving, right? This would yeah. save a lot of money, and mm. also could get these pipes, especially like the fl- some of the Flint pipes. I understand are still not safe still. to use. No, they, they're not. Is yeah, they could, it's such a health crisis. Yeah, they could get them to the point where they're where they're safe to use again. Still a stopgap. Still seems like a stopgap to me. They have to replace those pipes, but in the meantime, it could be it could be an effective measure. So hopefully that will that will work out. Yeah, roll that out all over the place. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a Band-Aid, but sometimes you need a Band-Aid, you know, until we can heal it more thoroughly. All right. So good job, guys. Jay, you can, at least you're continuing your bad record, right? At least yes, you're consistent. Yes, I'm consistent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Evan, give us a quote. Books are the carriers of civilization. Without books, history is silent, literature dumb, science crippled, thought and speculation at a standstill. Without books the development of civilization would have been impossible. Barbara Tuckman yeah. was an American historian and author and two times the Pulitzer Prize winner. How could you not love books? That oh is so gosh. alien to me. I, don't, I just can't wrap my head around that. And the symbology of burning them, yeah. it cuts deep. It means mm-hmm. a lot. Any yeah, Anybody today who burns books should be ashamed of themselves. Oh, it's. I mean, seriously, I mean... I, it's inexcusable. It is Absolutely shameful. inexcusable. All right. Well, thank all of you for joining me this week. Steve, I tried. And I, I know you, I you always try, Jay. You know, Give you good effort, Jay. <laughs> Goodbye, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> 
Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. Thank you.